The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Mr. President, I'm here! I voted for you! Wait a minute. That guy on the grassy knoll's got a gun! He's gonna shoot the president! Holy smokes, I've gotta do something! Darkmyths.org and Neopolis Media Group proudly present to you the Lone Gunman Podcast, featuring your host, Rob Clark, where research comes to shine and myths come to die. Stay tuned. Be right there. We approached the city and then finally turned down Main Street toward the Trinity River. The crowd increased as we got to the heart of the Dallas. And it's one of the most enthusiastic crowds I saw in any city we were in in Texas on that tour. That's on the sidewalks. Now, if you looked up in the upper stories, I never saw a single smile in any window I looked at. Some looked down and looked like with uh, dislike on the faces. Secret Service in the car in front of us kind of casually looked around, looked up at the back of them and rather slow to react. And it went under the underpass and as we came up on the other side, I could see then the president's car and there was Hill, whom I knew as a Secret Service man assigned to protect Mrs. Kennedy. He was lying across the back to hang on with arm over in there so he could hang on at that high speed. His face turned back towards us, just rather than ang- agony and beating with his hand on there like uh, a terrible thing has happened. I knew then that Kennedy had been shot. And within several minutes, we came to Parkland Hospital and the Secret Service immediately jumped out the minute Johnson's ass had they practically pulled him out and formed a cordon around him. Four or five and one of them said, Mr. Preston. I knew then Kennedy was dead. And I walked up to the car where Mrs. Kennedy was still there on the back seat lying there with her head bowed over, covering her husband's head, his blood running down her leg and by on her clothes, and twice saying, they've murdered my husband. They've murdered my husband. It's the most tragic sight of my life. That was Senator Ralph Yarbrough, everybody. What's up? And welcome to the show. This is episode one, one six of the Lone Gummin Podcast. This is your host, Rob Clark, with you here today. And I got a cool show for you today. We're going to be going into Dealey Plaza. We're going to be examining what several of the witnesses actually saw that day. And we're going to analyze it, break it down for you, and uh, check it out. But 
before we do, as you've heard from my recent uh, change in the opening to this show, I am part of a podcast collective over at darkmist.org. And I wanted to point everybody in the direction of a very, very cool show over there. And the name of it is Pete's Paranormal Chronicles. And uh, it's it's a very unique uh, unique show, a very funny podcast, and it's really unlike anything you've ever heard before. Um, the basic premise of it is it's kind of like a uh, a found evidence, you know, or a found audio or found film, you know, kind of like. Uh, the Blair Witch Project, you know, where they find the the film and, you know, years later they're watching it to see what happened. Well, this is found audio. Uh, in 1996, a guy named Pete Schwartz began work on a documentary series called Pete's Paranormal Chronicles. His sanity began to unravel during the production of the program and he became completely immersed in a nationwide conspiracy. December the 12th, 1999 is the last day anyone remembers seeing Pete Schwartz alive. These are the recording of Pete's old radio show. Turn the volume up and turn the lights down. And I'm going to put up a link for Pete's Paranormal Chronicles with the post for this show. But I just wanted to play everybody a little preview of what you're going to hear if you turn tune into this show. And it's kind of cool. The episodes are very short, you know, between like 10 and 15 minutes a piece. Uh, you know, you don't have to dedicate a lot of time to it. They're real quick shots. Uh, but here's a little taste of what you're going to get. You know, you might you might hear, uh, <laughs> you know, gigantic, uh, you know, it, it, hairy, it, it, you know, Italian gorillas with buck teeth or, uh, you know, something like that. But, you know, check this out. Be right back in a, in a, in a minute or so. From the imagination comes a story of a paranormal investigator and a nationwide conspiracy that will make your head spin. It's Pete's Paranormal Chronicles, a horror mockumentary series, now presented in supersonic sound. You want action? PPC will deliver action. Drama. I'm sorry, buddy boy. But that's a life, you know. Sometimes people die, you hear me? Anthropomorphic alligator of jazz musicians. Come on, man, you just isn't fair. You shouldn't be smoking crystal meth down here. I know Christina feels so nice, you gotta taste her. Trust me, I smoke my fair share. Suspense. According to Bill, Jonathan had plans to meet with Sarah at her place later that night to watch a movie, and he was secretly expecting some hot stuff to go down. Sadly, he never made it to Sarah's place, and nothing hot went down at all. And horror. The Dark Myths Podcast Collective presents Pete's Paranormal Chronicles, a comedy horror show. Turn the volume up. Turn the lights down.
All right, everybody, you can check that over at ckmomboquette.com. I'll put a link up to it with the post for this show. And uh, everybody show Corey some love and tell him your boy Rob sent you. And for all other historical, true crime, myth-related, fantasy fiction podcasts that you want to check out, head over to darkmyths.com. Okay, let's get into the show here a little bit. Now, I played you a little clip of what Senator Ralph Yarbrough had to say about his uh, events that day. And I wanted to play a lot of audio today. I'm going to play a ton of audio because I don't feel like talking too much today. It's late and uh, I'm feeling lazy. So, um, but trust me, you'll still want to hear this stuff. Um, Now, a lot of these witnesses you're going to hear today are Focusing on the events of what was going on on the grassy knoll around the fence line. I've had some requests to do shows about Ed Hoffman. And, uh, you know, I still might do a full show on that. I'm not sure. I need, I need to get in touch with uh, Casey Quinlan uh, and see if he wants to come on and talk about it. You know, he's written a book called Beyond the Fence Line. And it's all about Ed Hoffman's story. And I heard him present at a conference a couple of years ago. And they did a really good job and dispelled a lot of the a lot of the uh, myths uh, related to the Ed Hoffman story that people used to discredit him. Um, so we're just gonna listen to a couple of these folks today, and then and then we'll talk about each one of them. Uh, the first one uh, we're gonna talk about is Ed Hoffman, of course. So let's hear what Ed Hoffman has to say, and then we'll come back and talk about it. However, his story is confirmed by another eyewitness, Ed Hoffman, a deaf-mute who is interviewed here for the first time. I'd gotten off work early because I had a dentist's appointment. I was traveling down the freeway here, and I remembered that President Kennedy was coming to visit Dallas. I parked my car here. I realized at this spot that I would be able to see Kennedy pass close by. I stood here and waited, and I was looking towards where he would be coming from. I suddenly saw two men who looked suspicious directly over there in the car park. Twenty-five years ago, these trees did not obscure the view. From his position at the side of the freeway, Ed Hoffman could clearly see the car park area behind the grassy knoll. I saw a man standing here, wearing a black hat and a blue jacket. I saw a puff of smoke and I thought it was a cigarette, but it wasn't. He had a gun and he walked towards the railroad. He tossed the gun to the second man. Then he turned and straightened his jacket, adjusted his hat and walked casually away. The man with the striped shirt, the railroad shirt, walked over to the electrical box with the gun. He took the gun apart. He put it in a toolbox. He then walked slowly away. 
in the direction of the railroad track. When the motorcade passed by below me here, I realized that Kennedy had been shot. I was horrified. I saw a policeman standing on the railroad bridge, and I tried to get his attention, but he didn't see me. So I got in my car and drove to the area where I had seen the two men. But there were so many people there, and I couldn't find them. I went to the FBI to tell them what I had seen. They didn't want me to say anything. They offered me money to keep quiet. They didn't understand that it was more important for me to tell them what I'd seen. It was hard for me to communicate with them. I do feel that the two men I saw were working together and that the one with the gun behind the fence was the man who shot President Kennedy. Look at the situation. The FBI started in the investigation right away and they had all these reports, over 50 reports from my witnesses saying at least one of the shots came from that area. And here all of a sudden they've got a photograph that shows the precise area within a sixth of a second of when the president's head explodes. Someone somewhere in the FBI must have wondered perhaps the gunman is in this picture. And I think they knew the evening of the assassination that there was a second gunman up on the grassy knoll. Okay, now you heard a little bit of the Ed Hoffman story. The problem, of course, with Ed Hoffman is that he cannot speak and he cannot hear. So when he is trying to relay what he saw to these Dallas policemen, there was no sign language interpreter present. You know, so he's, you know, he's trying to explain, you know, what to these cops, you know, and, and. I guess there's a breakdown in communication or whatever. You know, he says he tries to go to the FBI and that they tried to offer him money. I, you know, I don't know about that, but most of the things used to discredit Ed Hoffman is, of course, the distance uh, from where he was sitting to, you know, his, his line of sight to the behind the fence line of the grassy knoll. You know, he's painted as a, as a, you know, a storytelling kook uh, that wanted to involve himself in the, in the, in the, uh, assassination narrative and, um, by many, many people, you know, but I, after seeing the presentation a couple of years ago, that Casey Quinlan and, and, uh, his, uh, co-author did, you know, for their book, it's, it's readily apparent that, that Ed Hoffman was in fact there he did in fact have a line of sight to behind the fence line because at the time the the obscuring trees and such you know weren't weren't there and you know how it is you know if you're if you're missing a couple senses like speech or hearing your other sense your other senses are going to make up try to make up for it now, I realize that Ed Hoffman was wearing glasses, um, but that is the only way that he can receive information is through sight. So he's going to be intently focused on what he's seeing. He's not going to have distractions of other noises around him. You know, he's going to be focused on what he can see, and he's going to be paying much more attention to what he's seeing 
than a lot of other folks would, you know, who, whose, you know, brains are working to interpret speech and are filtering out noises, background noises, or talking to their friends or, or, or what have you, you know, because Ed Hoffman didn't hear the gunshots, you know, he, uh, he, he did, you know, of course he's deaf. He didn't hear the gunshots. He didn't realize that, you know, Kennedy had been shot until he actually came under the triple underpass and, and drove by him on the way to Parkland. And from his position, he kind of looked down into the car and he could see what happened. But, you know, when he was watching the motorcade, he had saw the actions of these two men behind the fence line. One casually tossing the gun to the uh, railroad worker who broke the gun down, put it in a toolbox and walked away. And he said the shooter turned around and walked away. And he saw a puff of smoke come from the grassy knoll. And he put two and two, to go, two and two together rather quickly when he saw the president Kennedy was dead. And it was then that he kind of went into panic mode and said that he drove down there and tried to speak to people. And of course, you know, there's not real good communication going on there. Um, the one thing that is good about his story is that it is, it is actually corroborated by a lot of different witnesses who were actually closer than he was. So we're going to hear a couple more of them. Now, the next little piece I'm going to play you is concerning Gordon Arnold. Now, Gordon Arnold uh, is painted as a liar uh, by many, many people. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know. There's, there's, there's a little bit of raw emotion in this clip towards the end that would be pretty, pretty hard to fake. Um, you know, unless you were there. So I'm still kind of on the fence, you know, because it's very hard to see Gordon Arnold in any photographs, you know, but, you know, if he was wearing a, you know, an army uniform that kind of blended in with the, uh, the fence line up there, grassy knoll, um, you know, and, and, and a lot of this, what, what you're going to hear is, of course, Gary Mack and Jack White talking about Badge Man. And when they colorized the photo, you know, this other figure appeared in front of the fence who they were figuring was this Gordon Arnold guy. Um, because until they showed him this picture, uh, he didn't think that any photographic evidence existed of him being on the knoll, which he had always said that he was. And he, you know, so I don't know, listen to it and, uh, you know, see what your impressions are of, of the Gordon Arnold story. Here we go. The medical evidence as it exists now does not indicate a shot from the front, but uh, we do have to understand that if badge man was firing, and if it was Badge Man's shot that struck the president in the head, that means the medical evidence has been altered. And there you've got conspiracy existing within the United States government. Despite the government, Gordon Arnold is certain of what he saw. The training that I just finished, they were shooting live ammunition over us. 
and when a bullet goes past your ear and your eardrum feels like it's coming out the other side of your head, it's close. That's why I thought I was shot. There's no doubt in my mind that I was there, and it did occur. Further verification of Gordon's presence on the knoll comes from a surprising source, Senator Yarborough. During that shooting, my eye was attracted to the right of soil movement, and I saw a man just jump about 10 feet like at the old-time flying tackle in football and land against a wall. I thought to myself, there's an infantryman who's either been shot at in combat or he's been trained thoroughly. The minute you hear firing, get under cover. This colorized version of the Badgeman picture was shown to Gordon Arnold for the first time. He has always believed there was no proof of his presence on the knoll that day. Looks like a soldier in, in summer uniform with an overseas cap on. It looks like it would have been my, my uniform. It looks like there's a, a camera. Or there's something up in front of the face. It looks like a, a, a white spot. If it's a flash, it would be like off of the, a muzzle flash. This looks like a police officer because it, that would be the badge there would be the arm emblem. Would, would this fellow back here be the, uh, the railroad man I asked you about this morning? Because when I was walking to the site, and I, I had never told anybody that I had, when we were out there filming, it, it reminded me that the, there was a, uh, a railroad worker just standing out there by the railroad tracks. But that, it, it, it looks like somebody's taking a, a picture. Yeah, I, I couldn't figure out why, why would I be standing crooked until I flipped that up and if that's a muzzle blast or flash, then whoever's standing there would have been a fool to stand up straight. He'd been trying to get away from harm's way is what it boils down to. And... That could very well be me. Son of a gun. That would be the closest thing that I've ever, to be honest with you, the picture bothers me because if, if this is uh, a true thing of what, what has occurred, then I could be the only one that... Soccer man. They killed the president. And to be honest with you, if I'd have known this, I wouldn't have given the, the interview. That hits too close to home right now. If the figure is real, then that means the witnesses were correct, 
and the researchers who have spoken of conspiracy for 25 years now were also correct. It means the Warren Commission was wrong. There was a conspiracy. The question then is, who was involved in the conspiracy? And alongside with that is, was Lee Harvey Oswald involved in the conspiracy? Uh, one of the good things the Warren Commission did was literally itemize the last few days of Lee Harvey Oswald's life. And the problem for the Warren Commission now would become, well, he had no opportunity to be with other people to plan something like this. So we now have to wonder seriously, perhaps for the first time, whether Lee Harvey Oswald even fired any shots. Now, the reason I played that for you is so you could hear Gordon Arnold talk about the railroad worker who he saw behind the fence line, as well as Ed Hoffman. These guys are corroborating each other. They're putting a railroad man behind that fence line. They're putting a shooter behind the fence line. And the rest of the Gordon Arnold story is this, that shortly after the shots rang out, you know, of course he had hit, he had hit the ground. Um, it was either a cop, might have been the cop, supposed badge man cop that was doing the shooting, or a Secret Service agent, or someone came around, knocked him down, took his, because he was filming with a uh, a video camera, or a you know motion picture camera, and. They took his film and his camera and left him there, left him laying there. And, you know, if the story is true and you heard the, the raw emotion that, that Gordon Arnold has there, and that, that to me would be very, very hard to fake unless you are a very well-trained actor. You know, he wasn't seeking fame and infamy he wasn't seeking money for his story this is just you know a guy and you know it made me think of of when there's a pretty film pans towards the underpass and you kind of catch a glimpse of the top of one of the silver hats that, that the railroad workers would have been wearing at the time and <laughs> you know it's it makes you think, you know, what, what what are these guys seeing, you know? Um, but that's not the only ones. I've got a couple more for you here that's going to corroborate each other. Uh, the next one we're going to hear from is... Let's see. James Simmons. We are in Mesquite, Texas, in the home of James Leon Simmons, a car inspector for the Union Terminal Railroad. Mr. Simmons, how long have you been employed by the Union Terminal? I've been employed by the Union Terminal 11 years. Were you a witness to the assassination of President Kennedy? Yes, I was standing on the Elm Street overpass at the time of the assassination. Were you there alone or with others? Uh, there was a group of employees from the Union Terminal at the time and uh, two Dallas policemen. What did you see and what did you hear? As the 
presidential limousine was rounding the curve on Elm Street. There was a loud explosion. At the time, I didn't know what it was, but it sounded like a loud firecracker or a gunshot. And it sounded like it came from the left and in front of us, towards the wooden fence. And there was a puff of smoke that came underneath the trees on the embankment. Where was the puff of smoke, Mr. Simmons, in relation to the wooden fence? It was right directly in front of the wooden fence. I show you a picture published by the Warren Commission as Commission Exhibit Number 2215, which is a view of the triple underpass area. I ask you if you'd be good enough to mark with this pen with an X the area where you thought the shots came from and where you saw the smoke. It was this area here. After you heard the shot and saw the smoke, what did you do? I was talking with a patrolman Foster at the time, and as soon as we heard the shots, we ran around to the wooden fence. And when we got there, there was no one there, but there was footprints in the mud around the fence, and there was footprints on the wooden two before railing on the fence. Were you questioned by the Dallas police on that day? Yes, I was. Did you give your name to the Dallas police? Yes, I did. Did you tell them what you've just told me? Yes, I did. Were you subsequently questioned by agents of the Federal Bureau of Investigation? About a month later, I was questioned by the FBI. Did you tell them what you told me and what you told the Dallas police? Uh, yes, I did. Were you ever called as a witness by the Warren Commission? No, sir, I wasn't. This is the Warren Commission report. Back of it has an index of every person who is referred to by the commission. Is your name present there? No, sir, it is. Do you think it's rather curious that you had such a fine view of the whole Dealey Plaza area and you were among those who saw smoke coming from evidently behind the fence and yet you were not called by the commission as a witness? Well, I always thought it peculiar. I thought that's the way they did business. <laughs> ah, those trusting Texans. I tell you what. Now, I played you that to tell you this. This is another witness to a puff of smoke coming from the grassy knoll. Thought the shots were coming from behind the fence line. James Simmons was up on the triple overpass watching the motorcade. With a couple of his buddies, Richard Dodd and uh, S.M. Holland, who we'll hear from here in a little bit. Now I want to take you up above Dealey Plaza to the very top of the Terminal Annex building, which is the twin sister to the school book depository on the other side of the plaza. Now J.C. Price had a hell of a view from the roof of the Terminal Annex building, and this is where he watched the motorcade from. And here's what he has to tell us.
Well, maybe not. I don't know what's wrong with this audio. Here we go. Sorry about that. Yes, yes. Right here? Right here on this spot. And where did you think you heard the shots come from? From behind the overpass over there. Or uh, triple overpass. That's where I thought the shots were coming from. And where did you see the man run? Over behind that wooden fence. Classic cars. And over behind the Texas. Did you give that information to the Dallas Sheriff's Department on the very day of the assassination? Yes, I did. I'd say in about 30 minutes after the assassination. Were you ever called as a witness by the Warren Commission? No, sir. No, sir. <laughs> Is this the exact spot you were standing on on November 22nd, Mr. Holland? That's correct. This is the exact spot that I was standing on November the 22nd, waiting for the parade. And where did you hear that third shot come from? Right over about 20 or 30 feet from the other end of that little picket fence. And where was the smoke that you saw? It drifted right out underneath those green trees, those two trees. From behind the fence? From behind the fence. It kind of hung there just like a, well, a few seconds, long enough that you could see it. And then what you smoke? And then what you do? Immediately after the president's car came underneath this overpass, a four of us broke a run around this fence to find out if we could see anybody leaving the area. And we walk this way now, the you want on the 22nd? behind here for a while when the police officers were searching the area? Approximately 15 minutes before I had to go back to my office. There was about 40 or 50 uh, people around here searching. What did you find here? A lot of footprints behind this car, mud on the bumpers, and I looked around to see if I could find some empty shells or any evidence of a shot being fired in the bullet shell rejected from the gun, and this is where I saw the smoke from the third shot. Right drifting out around here? Just drifting out underneath these trees. And when that shot hit the president, as he passed by this lamppost, did you see the effect of the shot upon the president? Well, it knocked him over to his left down in the car. Away from here. Away from here. About where was he in relation, where was the car, the president's limousine, in relation to this lamppost? Uh, just a little to the left of that lamppost we're looking at. In effect, Mr. Holland, the Warren Commission published just a very small portion of your testimony and used your testimony as proof that no shots could have come from behind the fence. Do they accurately and fairly use your testimony? They are wrong because my testimony, and I made it very clear, that there was a fourth shot fired, and one of those shots came from behind that picket fence. And there's no doubt in my mind, and never will be, because I was on the spot. I saw the smoke heard the report and saw the smoke behind that fence. 
And I don't see how that they could doubt they was a four shot fire. The vast majority of the witnesses who expressed an opinion as to the origin of the shots agreed with Mr. Holland that the shot did come from behind the fence. These witnesses, as this picture shows, were positioned throughout Dealey Plaza. The commission concluded that no credible evidence suggests that the shots were fired from any place other than the Texas School Book Depository building. All right, now you just heard from J.C. Price and S.M. Holland. S.M. Holland was up on the triple overpass with James Simmons, who we heard from before, uh, and their friend Richard Dodd, who we're going to hear from here in a second. But what's interesting that S.M. Holland had to say is, of course, he saw the smoke too. Uh, and, you know, upon going over there and checking, there was mud on the fence. There was mud on the bumper of a car that was parked there behind the fence as if somebody was standing on the bumper um, using it to get a little higher, you know, behind the fence line. Heard shots coming from that direction, saw smoke coming from that direction, and had his testimony uh, perverted by the Warren Commission. But at least he got there. Uh, many of these other people, uh, Simmons, Dodd, Price, Arnold, you know, all these people, Warren Commission didn't even bother talking to him. So, let's hear from their buddy, Richard Dodd, who was up on the triple overpass as well. Where were you on November 22nd, Mr. Dodd? I was standing on the underpass, Commerce Underpass in Dallas, Texas. Were you there alone? No, I was along with three friends of mine. Railroad men? Yeah, all railroad men. Mr. Holland was one of them. That's right. And did you see anything which might indicate to you where the shots came from? Well, uh, we all three seen, four seen about the same thing as the shots, the smoke came from behind the hedge on the north side of the plaza and a motorcycle policeman dropped his motorcycle in the street with his gun in his hand and run up the embankment to the hedge. And then I went north to look around the corner to see if there's anyone behind the hedge and met special agent at Katy Railroad. And he went down there and I walked along with him to see if there were any tracks there in which there were tracks and cigarettes butts were laying where someone had been standing on a bumper looking over the fence or something. Were you questioned by agents of any government agency? On November 22nd, Mr. Dodd. Yes, we were. We taken over to the courthouse and questioned by, I suppose, Secret Service men of some kind. And uh, asked me quite a few questions about the same as I've told you men here today. But you were never called as a witness by the Warren No, I never was called. Because here's the Warren report, and in the index your name is not listed. And there's no reference in the whole 888 pages to the fact that you were up there and you saw what you saw, you heard what you heard. Well, uh, I don't know about that. But uh, there was something that uh, looked to me like that uh, 
going on there that somebody should found out something. A man walk up and shoot a man handcuffed to a couple of policemen and get away with it. Why? I figured there's something else that's going on besides what it should be. Ain't that the truth? Richard died. Something else going on that shouldn't be. So <clears throat> there you have, excuse me, a bunch, a bunch of Dealey Plaza witnesses that all corroborate each other. Three from the triple overpass, one from in front of the fence line, one from the top of the terminal annex building, and one further back down on the other side of the overpass, who all saw pretty much the same thing. They reported seeing smoke. This is where they heard gunfire coming from. And some of them even saw folks back there. And, uh, of course, one of them was a railroad man. You know, and if you're thinking of a hit team to pull this off, and you're going to be, you know where you're going to be shooting from. Um, you know, of course you're going to have disguises. That's why the whole badge man theory was so popular. You know, what didn't necessarily have to be a, a Dallas police officer back there shooting. But if it's somebody who is dressed like a Dallas police officer, you know, or dressed like a railroad worker in a railroad yard, you're going to blend in. Especially if somebody comes over there quickly. Nobody's going to suspect a railroad worker of shooting the president. He's supposed to be there. He's a railroad worker. Nobody's going to sh think that a cop shot JFK. But you would expect a police officer to be back there looking for somebody who shot JFK. If they got back there quick enough. So some very interesting things to think about, you know, some people have wrote books, you know, about how it just wasn't possible for a grassy knoll shot from the, from the, uh, what they call the North Knoll. Um, a lot of people have been accused of changing their stories to corroborate a shot from the grassy knoll. Here we have the testimony of these five different men positioned in all different places around Dealey Plaza who all corroborate each other, who all saw pretty much the same thing, and they're telling you what they saw. The Warren Commission didn't want to hear it. They didn't put it in there. And there had to be a reason for that. Now, of course, the naysayers are going to be like, well, because they're wrong, uh, their, inf their information doesn't jive with everything else. Um... You know, but it doesn't mean just because there were shots from the knoll doesn't mean there wasn't shots from behind as well. It doesn't mean Lee Oswald wasn't wasn't shooting or wasn't part of a conspiracy. You know, it's just the role hasn't been defined. But what it does tell us is that Lee Oswald was not just some kind of lone nut assassin, as we've been led to believe all these years. <laughs> by the Warren Commission and the mainstream media and the glorious lone nutters. Now, 
I believe, before we get uh, a little further into Dealey Plaza, that it is time, my friends, for... Ridiculousness of the Week. That's right. It's everybody's favorite time. Ridiculousness of the Week. And in keeping with the theme here recently, uh, this has to do with, of course, Rafael Cruz. Because this story has now grown legs. It's, it's went from, you know, the dark recesses of the interwebs of Wayne Madsen and company. And God knows who's behind the, the, breaking this story. Um, to the National Enquirer, now it's a national news story. And, of course, the person we're going to be talking about here today is not one to let national exposure get away from her. No, 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 no. Because if something big is happening and you have books to sell, then by God, why not put yourself in the middle of it too? Dateline, May 10th, 2016. Trying Day author Judith Very Baker, an eyewitness. <clears throat> an eyewitness, I'm sorry, recently spoke out to help identify the man in a historic photograph that is at the center of controversy about Ted Cruz's father, Raphael. <sighs> okay. After seeing the National Enquirer article, Author Judith Very Baker was interviewed by her boss, Chris Milligan, the publisher at Trying Day, about what she personally saw and heard that day. I saw Raffaello with Lee in front of the international trademark. I was no more than six feet from him and saw him clearly, but I did not know his last name. Lee only told me that his name was Raffaello and that he was there to watch Lee's back in the event that there was trouble. The cover story was that Lee hired Raffaello to help hand out FPCC flyers, but he was really there for Lee's protection. Lee also told me that both he and Raffaello pretended to be pro-Castro to flush out Castro sympathizers for ex-FBI agent Guy Bannister, said Judith Ferry Baker in an interview with her publisher, Chris Milligan last week. Judith detailed her relationship and uh, autobiography, me and Lee, blah, 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 blah. The other time I saw Raffaello, Judith told Milligan, was when Lee and I were walking through Lafayette Park near Bannister's office. Lee spotted Raffaello and said, Look, there goes Raphael the Archangel. That's when Lee told me that Raffaello was one of the Cubans whose parents were still in Cuba. So Lee could not fully trust him because Castro might be able to pressure Raffaello into spying by threatening his parents. <sighs> we were very familiar with that photo long before the National Enquirer broke the Raphael Cruz article, Milligan said. It's from the Warren Commission and we've used it in three books. One of our authors, Chauncey Holt, was even in the same photo. <sighs> and identified two of the other men in the book, in his book, which said that these men were working with him as part of CIA's Operation Mongoose, which armed pro or armed anti-Castro Cuban groups. 
The photos in question were taken by WDSU on August 16th, 1963. So, yeah. There you have it. This on the heels, of course, of Ted Cruz dropping out of the presidential race because of all this scandal. <sighs> and that, folks, is your Ridiculousness, Ridiculousness of the Week. It's always something, I tell you, I tell you, it's always something. <clears throat> so now we heard from the from the witnesses who saw something on the grassy knoll. But I want to move up a little further into Dealey Plaza. And uh let's hear from Arnold Rowland. Arnold Rowland was here with his wife on Houston Street in the crowd waiting for the motorcade. A few minutes before it arrived, Rowland told the Warren Commission. He noticed an elderly Negro man up in the window where you are now, where Oswald is supposed to have fired from. But he told the commission, and a few days ago repeated his story for us here, of seeing a gunman lurking in another window entirely. I just looking around and we noticed a man up in the window. And I remarked to my wife, tried to point him out, and remarked that he must be a security guard, secret service agent. Well, the window then that you're referring to is on the opposite uh, end of the building from uh, where the main entrance to the building is. Yes, it is on the other side of the building. And he had a rifle. It looked like a high-powered rifle because it had a scope which looked in relation to the size of the rifle to be a big scope. So, Roland. And <clears throat> what he's telling us is that in the window that Lee Oswald was supposed to be in, that he saw an elderly Negro. Now, he didn't say that the elderly Negro had a gun, but he did say that further down to towards the, I guess, the east side of the, uh, um, yeah, further down towards the plaza side, of the school depository in the very last window there, he did see somebody with a gun in the window. And he's not the only one who saw a black guy up in the window. Amos Ewens in his, well, I won't say first day testimony, but in a conversation with, uh, I believe it was, it might have been Pierce Allman. But anyways, it was a reporter close to him who he told um, or overheard Amos Ewens telling someone that he had seen a black gentleman up in the window. Um, so that's corroboration for that. Now, it could be, could be that these two people, Roland and Ewens, were looking at the window underneath of the sixth floor. Because we know there were some black guys up there. You know, Bonnie Ray, Jarman, and Harold Norman. Um, but it's unlikely. Uh, Amos Ewan said that he looked up and saw a, what he said, a pipe sticking out of the window of the sixth floor. Um, and if you look at the Manlicker Carcano very carefully... 
it does not have a very long barrel at all. It only protrudes about three inches from the stock. Um, it was a carbine. Okay, it wasn't like a infield. It wasn't like a thirty out six. It wasn't. It didn't have a, a long extended barrel out from the stock. You know, most high-powered rifles will have a, a barrel on it that at least sticks a foot out further than the wooden stock part of the rifle. This was not the case with the Manlik Carcano. It only had a very short barrel because it was originally designed to be used with a bayonet. Okay, that's how old this rifle is. You know, for close quarters combat in World War II. And uh, so it didn't have a very long barrel because if you use a bayonet, you know, you can't. It's really not effective if you have a long barrel because it's mounted to the stock, the wooden stock of the gun. So it needs to extend further than the barrel to be effective if you're going to stab somebody with it. Otherwise, you'd just be poking them with the barrel. So, you know, a lot of a lot of odd things. And of course, yeah, we have Howard Brennan, um, you know, who claims that that he saw a white guy up in the window. Um, who he identified as Oswald after later in the day. Um, so, you know, it's, 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 it's hard to tell. There was definitely, I think there was definitely somebody shooting or definitely somebody up there. Um, was it Lee Oswald? I don't know. You know, we have two people that saw a black guy up there. One person saw a white guy. Same person said he saw another person up in the window. And in some of the photos, like um, the Dillard photo, you know, you can kind of make out, you know, another figure up in the window. And then even further down, some people can make out another figure down that way, you know, under the light, behind the glass. You know, it's very, as with this photo stuff, it's very, very sketchy uh, to begin with. But, you know. You know how we uh, JFK assassination researchers are. <laughs> you know, we're going to try to find the truth anywhere we can find it. Um, even if it means enhancing a photograph beyond its capabilities. But it's very hard to say. And also, folks, Bart Camp, who I had on last week's show. I'm telling you, do yourself a favor and head over to his prayer man site. He has got a bunch of of new scans from the Richard Sprague collection of uh, a lot of these news reporters, uh, you know, from the, from Dallas morning news. Um, Jim Murray in particular was taking photos all over the place, but they have a good set of photos taken from the roof of the Dow Tex building um, with a rifle and kind of behind a buttress, it would, have, it would have been a perfect spot for a sniper because you have relatively the same angle as a six-floor depository shot. You have concealment from the left, from the left side of things, from the Houston Street side of things. Nobody's really going to be looking up in this particular position. Um, it would have been ideal for a sniper if they wanted to 
make it look like somebody was shooting in the sixth floor depository. Um, so very interesting photo series. You know, there's about, I think there's 15 photos. Um, so to, I encourage everyone to go check them out because they got a lot of other great photos over there as well. And that's prayer-man.com. It doesn't get any easier than that. Yeah, but sometimes if you, if you try to put that in your browser, it doesn't work right. So I would advise everybody to follow a provided link in it. And I think I'm going to just put a button up on my website to, to link you to it. Make it a permanent addition to the Lone Gunman website for, uh, for future use. Because there's a lot, a lot, a ton of great information over there. And uh, photos as well. So I think I am going to do that. I'm just going to put a button up. and uh, So be on the lookout for that. And if you haven't yet, everybody... Please help me out. Um, head to iTunes, leave me a favorable review. Make sure you're, you're subscribing to the podcast, either on iTunes or on Android or on Spreaker. Uh, you can follow me at any of these places. Uh, feel free to comment on anything. If you've got show ideas, guest ideas, i got some uh, interesting shows, hopefully, uh, in the works coming up for everybody out there. Uh, so stay tuned. Head over to tlgpodcast.com for more. And uh, that's about it for this one, folks. This some bitches in the can, beamed up the satellite down directly to your ears, people. This is your boy. Peace. Benjamin Banger freemusicarchive.org darkmist.org
You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only.